Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. Open up to Matthew chapter 12. While you're turning to Matthew chapter 12, just a quick reminder, uh, we have published last week a double episode covering uh, both John Marshall's teaching uh, last Sunday through uh, Matthew 11, 25 through 30, but also from uh, me, my, Bert's teaching up in Anthem Thousand Oaks uh, for verses 20 through 24. So check it out. We released both of them last week. So if you subscribe to our podcast or uh, you see on our website or whatever, there's going to be two for last week. Go check it out. We finished up Matthew chapter 11 Right now, today, we're continuing on through Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And as you're, as you're getting there, I want to do a little bit of, of context to help you understand where we're at in the story. Uh, but first of all, before we even dive into the context, um, two uh, recommended resources I have right up top. First is we're going to be talking a lot about the Sabbath uh, and what the Sabbath is, what it was meant for, and we're only going to be scratching the surface here. So if you want to learn more, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, highly, highly recommend a book called Garden City, by uh, written by a friend of Anthem, John Mark Homer, um, does some amazing work on work and rest and life, and his subtitle is The Art of Being Human. It's so good. He does some great work on the Sabbath. And so if, if something pings your mind and you want to dive a little bit deeper, go check that out. Um, also, uh, we're going to find in one of these verses that Jesus references himself as the Son of Man again. And so if you missed uh, uh, what the Son of Man is all about, if that's confusing to you, it's a strange title. We actually put together uh, some resources on that a few months ago. So go check it out. Uh, it's on our website. It's We published a special podcast episode just on the Son of Man. So go for sure listen to that if you want a little bit more. But in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus is, is on the road. It's the Sabbath morning. He's on his way to the synagogue. And so how we got here is we have to remember who Matthew's audience is in the first place. And Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And so the first couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel or his book is connecting Jesus to the Old Testament for the sake of his Jewish audience really showing how Jesus is fulfilling all these prophetic promises God had made with his people, demonstrating that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has authority to teach. So Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of all the history with God and the Israelites. That's really important. And then starting in chapter 4, chapters 4 through 7 is all about announcing God's kingdom. So God's kingdom is about his rescue operation for the world, and this kingdom will confront evil, restore God's reign, create a new family. And Jesus teaches on how to live in this kingdom in his first and largest block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a teaching to his disciples, and it's really a manifesto of how to live in this new kingdom. But since it's a teaching to his disciples and the crowds, it's also a standing invitation 
to the crowds and to anyone and everyone into this way of life. And it's here where we really see for the first time how upside down Jesus's kingdom really is. And then we move into chapter 8, and chapters 8 through 10 is all about bringing the kingdom into the reality, uh, into the reality of the day-to-day lives of, of just regular people. And so there's these stories of Jesus healing, casting out demons, calming a storm, and there's nine stories of Jesus bringing God's power into people's lives. And, and in between those stories are this, these different calls to discipleship or following Jesus and what it actually means to follow Jesus. Then in chapter 11 uh, through 13, Matthew has collected a bunch of stories about how people are responding to Jesus and his message. And we find that some are positive, right? That the people that Jesus is healing are obviously positive. They're, they're stoked that they're getting healed. They're having demons cast out. And some are neutral. So we remember from earlier in chapter 11, John the Baptist sends his, his disciples and, and asks, are you the Messiah? And there's a sort of this neutral like, we only want in if you're really the Messiah, and some are negative, like we're going to see today. Some of Israel's leaders think he's a, he's a false prophet. He's, he's violating certain important aspects of their law. And in the end of this section, in chapter 13, it's kind of a collection of parables that are designed to be a commentary of all the stories we read in chapters 11 and 12. And, and what we see in this portion of Matthew is that Jesus' kingdom will not stop spreading despite ardent opposition. In fact, it only grows bigger and greater. And so where we find ourselves in the story of Jesus today, right now, is early in the morning on the Sabbath, so it would have been a Saturday morning, on his way to the synagogue to teach. And that's where we're at in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. So let's read there. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pause for a moment and ask the the Lord to teach us. Father, we uh, just come before you just very thankful that we have the opportunity to study from this text, to hear from you, to learn more about you and your kingdom And we just ask that our hearts would be in a posture of of receiving and listening and and desiring to hear what you have to say. God, as as this is a message like many in Matthew that confronts our our upbringing, our worldview, our value systems, would we be quick to listen to you and and slow to listen to the, the voices in our culture that we've become so accustomed to? 
And so, Father, would you help me teach and preach in a way that honors the text and really um, honors what you have to say to your people? Amen. Amen. So when I was in Bible college, uh, one of the first classes I had to take was this class called Bible Study Methods, where the fancy title would have been hermeneutics, which basically taught us, budding Bible college students, how to study the Bible. It teaches us how to recognize the biases we bring in, uh, some of the cultural worldviews we bring to the table. And one of the first things we needed to learn about the Bible is what the author of the particular book's original intent was. So, for example, every every book has has a particular what we call authorial intent, or the the person who's writing is trying to accomplish something. So, for example, the book of Matthew, primarily written to a Jewish audience, what he is primarily doing is yes, he's chronicling the life, teaching, ministry, and message of Jesus the Christ. But since he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, what he's doing is he's writing his gospel in a way that would be an apologetic or a case for. Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah with authority to teach, preach, heal, save, and forgive sins. And so that was Matthew's primary intent. And so we have to look at the entire book through the lens of what is Matthew trying to do with his gospel? We have to do that with every book of the Bible. And that's what's called authorial intent. And what's happening here in Matthew chapter 12 is Jesus is calling out the Pharisees for missing the authorial intent of the Sabbath. He's calling the Pharisees out for missing the forest for the trees by creating all these rules and regulations about this Sabbath law. So much so that they have missed the original intent of the Sabbath. And Jesus says very clearly in verse 7, the point was mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus takes some time to redefine the purpose and intention of the Sabbath, not as something that was meant to be restrictive and box you in, but something that was meant to draw us into worship of Yahweh. So before we dive too deep into Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and some of the rebuffs he has for, for their questioning of him and his practice, we need to understand the Sabbath as a whole and what Jesus and the Pharisees were really talking about when they're talking about the Sabbath uh, and what they're bringing to the table as they're talking to really understand why Jesus was defying the Pharisees and why the Pharisees were so up in arms about this. This interaction was a big deal for Jesus and for his disciples and for those challenging Jesus and his disciples and and their authority. And so ultimately, understanding the Sabbath better will help us understand this text and our life with Jesus. So to start off with the Sabbath, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, we're reading through the Bible together as a church. So we wrapped up Exodus a few weeks ago. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you know Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? This big moment with with God and Moses on Mount Sinai. God had just brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and this victorious defeat of the Egyptian army. Right, God has shown his loving power and mercy in drawing them out, defeating Pharaoh and his army. And so we have the Ten Commandments, really the initiation of God's law with his people, saying this is how we're going to live together well. So the Ten Commandments start with you should have no other gods before me, don't have any idols, don't misuse the name of Yahweh. And the fourth commandment in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20 goes like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and you shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So this is the first time the Sabbath pops up for the Jewish people. And we find that the Sabbath is about rest. And this rest is about trusting God to provide for their needs. And it's for everyone. It's not just for the rich or those who can have leisure time. It's for the male servant, the female servant, the sons, daughters, livestock, those even just visiting with you inside the gates. It's for everyone. And look at God's reasoning. He says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. That's his basis for giving them this commandment, is look, the Lord rested, so we rest. And so, as we're reading this, we have to understand uh, the people that these Ten Commandments were giving to. So, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, this is all written to the Exodus generation of Israelites, or those people who God directly took out of Egypt. They, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, is, this is all about the Exodus generation of Israelites. Now, we see another set of Ten Commandments, the same Ten Commandments pop up again in a speech that Moses is giving to the kids of the Exodus generation. So if we remember our story of God's people, they are found to be faithless. They continue to disobey and question God, and God says, you will not enter the promised land, but your kids will. And so Deuteronomy, it's literally Hebrew for second law, is Moses giving a speech or delivering the law to the the kids of the Exodus generation, and he recycles the Ten Commandments. And so we have those first three, again, no other gods before me, no idols, don't misuse the name of Yahweh. And then the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, goes like this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall work and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So two fourth commandments, two instructions to keep the Sabbath day, but they're slightly different, right? So Deuteronomy is written 40 years later. So this is the speech that Moses is giving 40 years after the original Ten Commandments to a different generation of Israelites, different generation of God's people. These are the people who would enter the promised land. So look at how these are just ever so slightly different. They're just subtly different. The first word is different from Exodus 20, verse 8, to Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. In Exodus 20, the first word is to remember. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day. Ah, something is different. So Moses is not only recycling the Ten Commandments, but he's refining them and he's clarifying them even more for this new generation. 
And we find that in Exodus chapter 20 is grounded in the creation story. For in six days, God made the heaven, the earth, the sea, that all is, that is, in, all that is in them. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. He grounds this command in the Exodus story. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We have some other subtle differences in here. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, what was an art form of remembering the Sabbath is is now an act of defiance to the cultural uh, uh, pressure to work and gain success. This is goes from an invitation in Exodus 20 to this new way of life to a word of warning if they do not keep it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And what both of these texts tell us about the Sabbath is ultimately Sabbath is for rest. But not only that, rest is a byproduct of freedom. Moses reminds the people they're not slaves anymore, so they don't have to live and work like slaves. Slaves work seven days a week. They don't get a Sabbath. Slaves don't get rest. Slaves don't get time off. They're not slaves anymore. And so this rest, this Sabbath rest, is a byproduct of their newfound God-given freedom. Sabbath is a way to ensure they never become slaves again and that they never become the slave drivers. So this Sabbath was meant to reinforce their trust in God to provide. So now back in Exodus, we see another facet of, of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is given in Exodus chapter 20 as one of the, those original Ten Commandments, but it's also fleshed out a little bit more at, towards the end of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 31. Let's go to verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Second time he says holy, that's huge. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath is about rest, but that's not all. It's also about worship. God's people were meant to display God's goodness to the world, to show a different way of living. And the Sabbath is a sign that God is sanctifying his people. It's a holy day. It's recognizing God in his proper place and them in their proper place. So Sabbath is about rest, but it's also about worship. And we see and we understand that worship is a byproduct of identity. Sabbath is a way of identifying with God in his identifying with us. So I would argue, though, the most important text or the most important scripture we have around Sabbath goes back even earlier than the Ten Commandments, even earlier than Egypt, than Moses, than the wilderness, goes all the way back to creation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rested. Think about that for for just a moment. God rested. Now, was God tired? Did he need a vacation? I don't think so. But I do think he was modeling a way of life for all humanity. Why? Well, we just have to look a few verses back. At the end of chapter 1, we see that God has a unique relationship with humanity. Look at Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's huge. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So this is a big deal. The Sabbath is more than a law in the Old Testament. It's part of this created intent for humanity. Wired into our very beings is this rhythm of six days of work, one day for rest and worship. The Sabbath was a good thing given by God to his people for their good. And the idea was to rest from your work, rest from the thing you do six days a week, and remember your God who provides for you. The creation story starts with God working, creating everything in the universe, and ends with him resting. Now, I don't think God made everything and got winded on day six and said, I need a vacation. God didn't need to rest, but we do. And because God made us in his image, he graciously models a way of life for us. We're made to mirror what God is like to the world. God works, so we work. Working is good. It's God-ordained. God rests, so we rest. John Mark Comer, the author of the book I recommended earlier, Garden City, says this about the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath is mandatory for survival, to say nothing of flourishing. I'm not a machine. I can't work seven days a week. I'm a human. All I can do is work for six days and then rest for one, just like the God whose image I bear. So good. What Genesis 2 tells us about the Sabbath is it isn't just a day off to nap all day and to watch Netflix or whatever, because John Mark continues to go on talking about the Sabbath, say it's a, it's a day to delight in what one Hebrew poet called the work of our hands, to delight in the life you've carved out in partnership with God, to delight in the world around you, and to delight in God himself. And this was at the heart of the Sabbath, So by that time, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. They had created hundreds of additional rules to add to God's law. They had created quite a few for the Sabbath as well. So when we read those texts out of Exodus and Deuteronomy about not working on the Sabbath, but those texts really don't define what working is, does it? Although there's an implication that you don't continue your six-day-a-week job on the seventh day, it's a little vague. In the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, only one work activity is specifically prohibited. That's in Exodus 35, and it's kindling fires. That's it. So even if we go beyond the Torah into the history and prophetic books, you only find a few more details around what quote-unquote working on the Sabbath means. In Jeremiah, you'd find regulations about not carrying burdens. In Nehemiah and Amos, you'd find regulations about not buying or selling. Uh, In Isaiah, you'd find this prohibition from talking idly and seeking your own pleasure, but instead delighting in God. But that's it. 
In the whole of the Old Testament, that's it. For what seems to be a really crucial, momentous, creation, human, rhythmic thing, there's not a whole lot of instructions on how to carry it out. And for legalist, vagueness is problematic. And so what what the legalists do, what the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, what they aim to do, and maybe it was out of good intention, so we remember they had we hope, good intentions at the beginning uh, of this kind of silence we have in Scripture. So the very end of Nehemiah is the last chronological account of God's people. And and we see this new uh, rabbinical system of schooling and teaching pop up in a way to preserve Jewish life in exile. And so it maybe started with good intentions, uh, begin to spiral out of control, and they continue to add their own details around these other laws to keep themselves from even coming close to violating these laws. And the Sabbath was no exception. So over time, we have all these added rules to the ones we see in Scripture to answer every possible question about every possible law, including Sabbath keeping. So the Mishnah, which is a compilation of Jewish oral traditions that sprouted up in this time, lists 39 classes of work that violate the Sabbath. So including those we might expect, such as like plowing, hunting, butchering, and those we would not such expect, like tying or loosing knots, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. Some of these rules were a little absurd. (laughs) For example, one rule stated that if a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued, but if dead, the corpses must be left until sunset. So it's this state of the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12 that we find Jesus in. What God had intended for good, for his glory, to set his people apart, stating they don't need to work themselves into the ground like a machine because they could trust in a gracious, loving father who would provide for their every need, gets twisted into legalistic rule-keeping. And it's this climate of legalistic rule-keeping, our adventures and missing the point, that Jesus challenges. And we find that challenge in Matthew 12 as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry, so they plucked some grain off of some crops and they ate. And the Pharisees saw it and they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, not lawful according to who? To the Torah? To the the prophets? No, to all, all these extra rules that they've added on. So it's important to understand what's paramount here is Jesus is not challenging the Sabbath law itself, even the creation precedent set in Genesis chapter 2. Rather, he's challenging the Pharisees' interpretation of it. And really, this, this isn't new, because as the Messiah, Jesus authoritatively interprets every aspect of the law. And at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he even says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he continues on the rest of Matthew to reinterpret common Jewish laws with these kingdom lenses. And that's exactly what he's doing here with the intent of the Sabbath and the Pharisees' blindness thereof. So the Sabbath was a good thing given given by God to his people for their good. And the idea was to rest from your work and remember God. But there had been all these rules added to it. And so it had become quite a lot of work to keep the Sabbath properly. So as the Pharisees challenged him, Jesus challenges them right back. And he does it in in these three rebuffs to to their challenging of his authority. And the first is found in in verse 3, where he says to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, 
and those who were with them, and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is, it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with them, but only for the priests. So for those unfamiliar with the story that Jesus is referencing here, it's from 1 Samuel 21, and the story goes something like this. David, uh, who was not the actual king, he was anointed, but he wasn't enthroned yet, and he's on the run from Saul, who was the enthroned king, who was not happy that he was getting the boot. David went into the tabernacle, the house of God, on the Sabbath and asked for food. The high priest first replied that he couldn't help because the only food in the house was the bread of the presence. These 12 loaves of bread that have been consecrated, placed on the table in the tabernacle each Sabbath. It's a meal only eaten by the priest. It's meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked, placed in the tabernacle as an offering each Sabbath. And so it was only eaten to be, uh, only eaten by the priests. And David begged to eat even of this really, really holy meal. So the priest had a choice to make. Should he let common mercy, right? These people are legitimately hungry and on the run. And this, this king's authority, because this is David after all, override the, the sacred ritual. So what did he do? Well, seeing David's need and recognizing David's authority, so we have to assume that the high priest knew that David was this incoming king and, and was God's true king of Israel. The priest broke the letter of the law so as to uphold the spirit of the law. And he gave David and his men the consecrated bread, and they gladly ate it. And what's interesting about this story is that Scripture does not condemn David for eating the bread during his escape from Saul. It, it doesn't praise him, but it doesn't condemn him. It's just neutral about it. The law was intended to serve God's people rather than God's people being intended to serve the law. And the point here is that if the greatest king of Israel, David, had committed a far greater breach of the Sabbath law and was not blamed or punished for it, then the disciples and Jesus are not to be blamed or punished for their violation of the rabbinical law. But Jesus' argument rests on the case that he himself is at least as special as David, if not more. This is huge. And so the question that has to be cropping up for the Pharisees is, who are you claiming to be? Are you, Jesus, as special as David? Are you more special? Is that what you're claiming? Are you claiming to be king, a new David? But before they could respond, because I'm sure this was going in their minds, he gives them another example, this time going further back to the law that they are claiming to be defenders of themselves. And in verse 5, he says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, to explain what Jesus is saying here, I want to paint a bit of a picture for you. Uh, It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it, it helps you understand what's going on here. Now, I am not an Old Testament priest. I'm graciously and gladly a New Testament pastor. But similar to an Old Testament priest, my, my work week is usually a bit different than yours. It sometimes is kind of opposite in an effort to get time with you, to take meetings, to counsel people, do weddings. You're using the time when people who work nine to five kind of regular jobs have off. And so those are the time I'm, I'm trying to get with people. So for me and my family, our weekends are sometimes a little bit strange, and Sundays especially, what would be our our Sabbath today, Sundays are typically a day where my work ramps up quite a bit, and it's incredibly busy. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, priests work on the Sabbath, right? They work on Saturdays. They get all dressed up in their priestly attire. They walk over to the temple, light some candles, gather wood, build a fire, bake some loaves of showbread. It's 
And is their work wrong? Well, no. They're not, they're not guilty of breaking the Sabbath because temple work trumps Sabbath rest. And that's Jesus' biblical argument here. Is once again, his argument is deeper and more profound than simply temple overriding the Sabbath. Jesus is saying he's not merely greater than the priesthood, he's greater than the place that they work, the temple itself, the meeting place of God and humanity. He's claiming to be that meeting place. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment and embodiment of the Sabbath day, the temple, and even the law. And these were some of the dearest and most elevated realities of the people of God in in first century Palestine. And what Jesus is getting at is all these realities, like the Sabbath, the temple, the laws, he's pitting himself as the fulfillment of all of these. Thus, saying salvation does not come through perfect Sabbath keeping, attendance at temple, or even perfect obedience to the law, but through himself. Salvation comes only to those who rest in Jesus. Remember that the verses just from the very end of Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of true rest. He's the greater David, greater temple, And he has one more pushback in verse 7. One more rebuff to the Pharisees' questioning of his authority. Matthew 12, verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Okay, so in other words, they're missing the point big time. The heart of Jesus' argument comes back to the original intent. Jesus was putting the law in its proper place and context. He says, no matter how great your sacrifice is, if you have no love for people or if law keeping comes at the expense of love for people, for the poor, the oppressed, the hurting, needy, don't think God is pleased with your abundant sacrifice if you have no mercy. Matthew commentator and scholar Douglas Sean O'Donnell says, divine devotion without human sympathy is irreligious. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. Above all, God desires mercy. Or, like the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Jesus is the greater David, greater temple, and he is mediating what God cares about. He is mediating the original intent of God's law to his, to his people. Who is this Jesus? Well, he calls himself, in verse 8, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath points to Christ and to the rest he truly gives from the impossible task of earning salvation by good works. Now, let's be clear about something. Jesus wasn't saying that the Sabbath was a bad idea or that God had changed his mind about the whole thing. That's not what's happening here. It's not what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, we find that Jesus kept a regular Sabbath. He kept that practice in his life. He was attacking the way this beautiful, life-giving practice had been contorted into a system of legalistic law-keeping with those enforcing the law, forgetting whose idea it was in the first place and what his intent was. Mark, uh, in chapter 2 of the book of Mark, tells 
The same story. And before Jesus goes on from there to enter the synagogue, Mark includes this little saying that Jesus had in Mark 2, verse 27, where he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees went overboard with it and needed the rebuke in the second half of that phrase. I would argue we need to hear the first part of that phrase, that the Sabbath was made for man. You see, the Pharisees' problem was they had too many rules around the Sabbath. Fences around laws, laws around laws. And for us, it's not that we don't have too many rules on the Sabbath, it's that we don't have any at all. I would be willing to wager that the majority of us don't even Sabbath at all. It's not honestly something that was a part of my life rhythm or my family's rhythm until very recently, and we're very much trying to figure out what it looks like and how to work that out. Now, in general, especially in Ventura, we love our time off, our adventures, our vacations, our holidays, trips, whatever. But I think very few of us have a regular practice of Sabbath, a day for nothing more than rest and worship. An important practice of following Jesus is working out a Sabbath in your life. Living a life that includes Sabbath proclaims with your life that Jesus is Lord and that we don't have to be slaves to our work or our culture or our schedules. Just like the Israelites are not slaves anymore in Egypt, they can rest. We are not slaves to our careers, our culture, our calendars, but we're proclaiming we trust that Jesus is Lord and he will provide. And Jesus demonstrates that very truth in the next part of the story in verse 9. After these arguments, and, and if this knockout punch wasn't enough, Jesus heads to the synagogue to teach. And the synagogue is usually where you'd find Jesus on the Sabbath with the people of God. And this Saturday morning, there's a man with a deformed hand. And now Jesus is already on thin ice with the Pharisees, but he demonstrates with his healing power that he has authority over the law over the Sabbath, and over the rabbinical laws put in place in additional to the Hebrew scriptures. Look at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Have you noticed that Jesus does some of his best work on the Sabbath? It's so fitting because the Sabbath is all about intimacy with God. And and a sign of God's love for you is healing. So a better time to heal than on the Sabbath. It's so good. But this messed with the system that the Pharisees have spent hundreds of years refining and teaching and enforcing and creating. And so here in Matthew 12 and verse 14, we have the first blatant, outright opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And we know if we've spent any time in Matthew before, this just starts this snowball that keeps on building The Pharisees and the religious leaders see clearly that Jesus' claim concerning authority to interpret the law was in fact a claim to messianic authority. It was a big deal. They judged it as heresy worthy of death, and so they conspired with how to destroy him. Jesus, on his way to the temple, teaches about what the Sabbath is really all about. Not only that, claims to be the fulfillment of true Sabbath, and that his disciples find it in him. And the Pharisees are not having it. 
Now, lots of people misread Jesus in these stories where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, and it's easy to think that Jesus is somehow downgrading or pushing off the Sabbath as unimportant or or legalistic or just simple law-keeping. But remember our text from the very beginning. The Sabbath predates the law. It's, it's right there in the creation story. It's a rhythm of creation. And so what's important to understand about this text here is Jesus is not downgrading it or, or pushing it off to the side. He's redefining the purpose and the intention. He's taking us back to the original intent. He's reminding us it's not something that was meant to be restrictive, but something to draw us into worship. And so really, this is a text about who Jesus is, his authority, what kind of authority he has to teach and, and reinterpret laws and to bring God's original meaning to law. He's reclaiming the Sabbath, and, and by that, it's telling us something about Jesus, that he is authoritative to do that. And so while this is not like an outright teaching on how to keep the Sabbath, it's, it's there, and it's, we recognize it's a part of this human rhythmic created intent, but what we see in this text is Jesus is saying, I, I'm the greater David. I'm the greater priesthood, the greater temple. I fulfill and embody the law. Thus, I have authority to tell you how to work this out and to tell you this is what God actually meant. So why can we Sabbath? Well, because we believe our eternal life has been secured for us by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, so we can trust him for our needs. Why can we rest? Because God rests. And as image bearers, invites us to do the same. He calls us to be like him. And somehow along the way, the Pharisees had lost the point. They'd lost sight of what the Sabbath was all about. And the Pharisees had it backwards. They got out of step with God's heart and intent. And Jesus is calling them back to the Sabbath roots and origins, claiming to be at the center of it. The Sabbath isn't a cold, arbitrary rule, an adherence to outdated law. It's this life-giving art form that we get to practice because Jesus is our true rest. Living a life that includes the Sabbath rhythm proclaims with your life that Jesus is Lord. And we don't have to be slaves to our career, our culture, or our calendar. I think more than anything else, this text forces a few questions for us to consider. Those questions are, who is Jesus? Or maybe a better question is, who do we believe him to be? Is he really the Lord over our Sabbath? Is he really the Lord over our week? What authority does he have? And does it matter Do we really believe he has the authority to to preach and teach and to to tell us what God's original intent was? What authority does he have over us and the days of our week, over me and my heart? And finally, can I truly trust God for my life and livelihood and rest? If we are finding true rest in Jesus, if our life and our week reflects that, that says Jesus is Lord. And we don't have to be slaves to our calendar, to our culture, or to our career. We can say, I trust Jesus is going to provide so I can take time to rest and to worship. Jesus redefines the purpose and intention of the Sabbath. He takes us all the way to the beginning with what God actually meant to draw us into worship. The Sabbath was a good thing given by God to his people for their good to remember him, to rest from our work, to worship God. 
And Jesus says, I'm at the very center of all that.